Chapter Zero of the Story of the Atlantic Cable. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Cable by Sir Charles Bright. Prefatory Note The Jubilee of Submarine Telegraphy having lately been achieved, and that connected with the Atlantic Cable being somewhat close at hand, it has been thought a suitable moment for the appearance of this little volume. In these days, when the substitution of submarine cables by wireless telegraphy systems is a subject of common talk, it may be well to pause for a moment and contemplate the period of time covered by the gradual evolution of old and existing methods, which at length achieved the result we now enjoy, a practical commercial telegraphic system between all the nations of the world, and notably between the United Kingdom and America. By a somewhat curious coincidence, the engineer of the first Atlantic cable accomplished his achievement at practically the same youthful age, twenty-six, as Mr. Marconi when first transmitting signals across the Atlantic without any intervening wires. C.B., 21 Old Queen Street, Westminster, Southwest, October 1903. Part 1. Introductory. The Electric Telegraph. The advances made in electric science are so bold and rapid that our still comparative ignorance of the precise nature of electricity must always seem strange. We are not, however, here directly concerned with electricity as a physical science but rather with its practical applications to the still-present system of telegraphy, by way of introduction to the gradual development of transatlantic telegraphy. The electric telegraph, together with the railway train and the steamship, constitute the three most conspicuous features of latter-day civilization. Indeed, it may be truly said that the harnessing of this force of nature, electricity, to the service of man for human intercourse, has effected a change in political, commercial, and social relations even more complete than that wrought by steam locomotion. Like its fellow emblems, the telegraph was the outcome of many years of persevering effort on the part of numerous scientific investigators and inventors. Like them, also, it was perfected for practical use on both sides of the Atlantic by men of our own race and speech, such as Cook, Wheatstone and Morse. The first land telegraphs. The first practical telegraph line in the world, namely that on the Great Western Railway from Paddington to West Drayton, shortly afterward extended to Slow, was within the year of Queen Victoria's accession to the throne, and in the same year as the first trunk line of railway and the first ocean steamer. Improvements and novelties in telegraphic instruments were rapidly made by inventors from all the civilized nations, that is, Morse, Vale, and Henry in America, Breguet in France, Steinheil and Siemens and Halsk in Germany, and Schilling in Russia, besides Alexander Bain, Bright, and Hughes in England. Commercial interests were soon formed to work the new invention, and in England the Electric and International Telegraph Company, the British and Irish Magnetic Telegraph Company, 
and other large concerns were the means of establishing telegraphic communication throughout the kingdom, only to be absorbed by the government later on. Our theme does not include, even in the course of introduction, a study of the development of land telegraphy. The apparatus and methods employed are to a great extent entirely different. Indeed, the only point in common between the cardinal principles and submarine telegraphy is that electricity, as generated by a voltaic battery, is the common agent, and consequently the metal conducting wire is employed in both. But in subaqueous as well as in subterranean telegraphy, the poles and the porcelain insulators require to be substituted by an insulating covering round the entire conductor, and the point of contact in practice between land and marine telegraphy is really therefore in the matter of insulation for subterranean or subaqueous wires. First Submarine Cables a Spaniard named Salva appears to have suggested the feasibility of submarine telegraphy as far back as 1795, and in 1811 Summering and Schilling conducted a series of experiments, more or less practical, when a soluble material, said to have been India rubber, was first used for insulating the wire. But the earnest records of practical telegraphy underwater, of which there are any particulars, relate to the experiments conducted by Dr. O'Shaughnessy, afterwards Sir William O'Shaughnessy Brooke, F.R.S., across the River Hooghly, on behalf of the East Indian Company in 1838. Referring to his practical researches a little later, O'Shaughnessy remarked, Insulation, according to my experiments, is best accomplished by enclosing the wire, previously pitched, in a split rattan, and then paying the rattan round with tarred yarn, or the wire may, as in some experiments by Colonel Palsy, R.E., at Chatham, be surrounded by strands of tarred rope, and this by pitched yarn. An insulated rope of this kind may be spread across a wet field, nay, even led through a river, and will still conduct the electrical signals, without any appreciable loss. In 1840, Professor Wheatstone, afterwards Sir Charles Wheatstone, F.R.S., explained to a committee of the House of Commons the methods by which he thought it possible to establish telegraphic communication between Dover and Calais. He appears to have been unaware of the prior experiments just alluded to, for his system of insulation, though more fully developed, was practically the same. Professor S. F. B. Morse, the well-known inventor of the telegraph apparatus bearing his name, also made a study of this problem in 1842, when he laid down an insulated copper wire across New York Harbor, through which he transmitted electric currents. Hemp, soaked in tar and pitch, surrounded with a layer of India rubber, constituted the insulation. Morse was a great letter-writer, and records of his early work are solely based on his own statements at a time when he noted in his diary, I am crushed for want of means, my stockings all want to see my mother, and my hat is hoary with age. In 1845, Ezra Cornell, who was afterward the founder of Cornell University, laid a cable twelve miles long in the Hudson River to connect Fort Lee with New York, 
the cable consisted of two cotton-covered copper wires insulated with india rubber and enclosed in a leaden pipe it worked well for several months but was broken by ice in eighteen forty six in that year mr charles west paid out by hand an india rubber insulated wire in portsmouth harbor through which he signaled from a boat to the shore the experiment was intended as the forerunner of the establishment of telegraphic communication between england and france but for want of the necessary funds was not followed up subaqueous or marine telegraphy owed its institution however to the introduction of gutta-percha for insulating purposes the late dr werner siemens having invented a machine for applying gutta-percha to a wire similar in principle to the machine for making macaroni considerable lengths of gutta-percha covered subterranean wires were laid in germany and prussia between eighteen forty six and eighteen forty nine and in eighteen forty nine siemens laid a gutta-percha insulated conductor in the harbor of kiel which was used for firing mines following this came the extensive system of underground lines laid down in england for the magnetic telegraph company by their engineer mr afterwards sir charles bright in accordance with a patent of his short lengths were also laid mostly through tunnels by the electric telegraph company a little later on the tenth day of january eighteen forty nine the late mr c v walker f r s electrician to the southeastern railway laid a gutta-percha covered conductor two miles long in the english channel the wire was coiled on a drum on board the laying vessel from which it was paid out as the vessel progressed starting from the beach at folkestone the line was joined up to an aerial wire eighty-three miles in length along the southeastern railway and mr walker on board the princess clementine succeeded in exchanging telegrams with london on the twenty third july eighteen forty five the brothers jacob and john watkins brett addressed themselves to sir robert peel as prime minister and first lord of the treasury relative to a proposal of theirs for establishing a general system of telegraphic communication oceanic and otherwise they were referred to the admiralty foreign office etc and gradually became involved in a departmental correspondence more academic than useful in which they were passed backward and forward from one government office to another after considerable negotiations with both governments concerned a concession was at last obtained by the messrs brett and a company formed for instituting telegraphy between england and france by means of a line from dover to calais twenty-five nautical miles of number fourteen copper wire covered with half-inch thickness of gutta-percha was then manufactured the electrician's tongue being the only test applied to some of the lengths the shore ends for about two miles from each terminus consisted of a number sixteen b w g conductor covered with cotton soaked in india rubber solution the whole being encased in a very thick lead tube the rest of the line was composed of the gutta-percha insulated wire above described with thirty-pound leaden weights fastened to it at hundred-yard intervals the laying vessel having to be stopped each time one was put on 
the submersion of the line was successfully effected but it only lived to speak a few more or less incoherent words one being a short complimentary communication to louis napoleon bonaparte shortly afterward emperor of the french it subsequently transpired that a boulogne fisherman had hooked up the line with his trawl mistaking it for a new kind of seaweed this enterprise excited little attention at the time it was in fact regarded as a mad freak and even as a gigantic swindle when accomplished the times remarked in the words of shakespeare the jest of yesterday has become the fact of to-day and a few hours later it might with equal truth have been said that the fact of yesterday has become the jest of to-day the feasibility of laying such a line and of transmitting electric signals across the channel had however been proved the signals obtained had moreover the effect of eradicating the then very prevalent belief that even if the line were successfully submerged the current would become dissipated in the water it now remained to find a satisfactory method of protecting the insulated conductor from injury during and after laying the excellence of the insulating material was recently testified to when some portions were recovered though the above line was not practically speaking turned to any account it was by no means abortive for the signals it had conveyed were sufficient to save the concession which was renewed by the french government on december nineteenth eighteen fifty but the previous failure had made capitalists distrustful and only some weeks before the expiration of the time limit the necessary funds had not been raised dover to calais eighteen fifty fifty one the undertaking was saved by the energy and talent of one man mr t r crampton an eminent railway engineer he raised the necessary capital fifteen thousand pounds putting his own name down for half this amount and being joined by lord de Molly and the late sir james carmichael he mr crampton also settled the type of cable to be laid based on the iron pit rope this in one form or another practically remains the type of to-day the cable contained four copper conducting wires of number sixteen b w g each one covered with two layers of gutta percha to number one gauge these four insulated conductors or cores were laid together and the interstices filled up with strands of tarred russian hemp the outer covering consisted of ten galvanized iron wires of number one gauge wound spirally round the bundle of cores this armor was provided with a view to protecting the insulated conductors from the strains and chafing which had so seriously interfered with the chances of the previous line the completed cable weighed about seven tons to the mile it was coiled into the hold of an old pontoon hulk which was then taken in tow by two steamers a third tug to stand by and a small man-of-war steamer to act as pilot accompanied the laying expedition the cable was landed at the foot of the south foreland lighthouse and paid out toward cape sangat but the weather was less favorable than on the previous occasion moreover the weight of the cable in the absence of efficient holding back gear caused it to run out too rapidly notwithstanding the slight depth some thirty fathoms encountered 
added to this the tugs drifted with the wind and tide thus when the vessels arrived within about a mile of the french coast no more cable was left on board and a fresh length had to be procured and spliced on before the line was complete this cable proved a lasting success it underwent numerous and extensive repairs and it was only quite recently that its abandonment took place other early cables the success of crampton's line gave considerable impetus to submarine telegraphy similar enterprises sprung up on all sides but many failures occurred before these operations came to be regarded as ordinary industrial undertakings in the course of the following year eighteen fifty two three unsuccessful attempts were made to establish telegraphic communication between england and ireland in the first between holyhead and howth the cable was not heavy enough to contend with the rough bottom and strong currents and disturbances from anchors experienced in these waters but this undertaking is remarkable as being the only instance in which an effort was made to do without any intermediate serving between the insulated conductor and the iron sheathing in the second attempt between port patrick scotland and donaghadi ireland the cable consisted of a central copper conductor covered first with india rubber then with gutta percha and then hemp outside all this cable being far too light was actually carried away by the strong tidal currents and even broken into pieces during laying in the third endeavor between the same two points the arrangements for checking the cable while paying out being again inadequate there was not sufficient to reach the farther shore however in eighteen fifty three a heavy cable weighing seven tons per mile with six conductors was successfully laid for the magnetic telegraph company by the late sir charles bright this was in upward of a hundred and eighty fathoms the deepest water in which a cable was laid for some time and proved a permanent success forming the first establishment of telegraphic communication with ireland only a year elapsed before it became evident that another cable was required to meet the traffic between england and the continent and an additional line was laid from dover to ostend anglo-dutch and anglo-german cables followed in due course and in less than ten years from the commencement of its operations over the first channel cable the submarine telegraph company since absorbed by the state was working at least half a dozen really excellent cables varying from twenty-five to a hundred and seventeen miles in length connecting england with the rest of europe during the next few years submarine communication was established between denmark and sweden as well as between italy corsica and sardinia and between sardinia and the north coast of africa but where successful the measures adopted were in the main similar to those we have already described in connection with the preceding lines though special conditions were in some instances the means of introducing certain modifications and improvements several serious failures were however experienced in the deep water of the mediterranean which had a detracting effect in the public mind on the chances of the great undertaking which was to follow End of chapter zero recording by maria casper